Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're under that pressure, you come up with some uh, you know, creative, creative things to, to make it work. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Sharm and in this episode, we're speaking with property developer and managing director of Avonor, James Paver. As the leading player in the commercial and mixed-use development market, delivering a hugely successful $413 million office project from inception to completion, we hear the inspiring story of how he got there and much, much more. We delve into what a normal day looks like for Paver. These days, it's uh, a matter of trying to get the guys back to the office because of COVID. So, so today, I'm in the office uh, gearing gearing everything up and so starting getting the split shifts going next week, I think, So, which is good. But um, typically, uh, it's, it's a matter of um, working with my team across commercial and residential projects uh, in, in Sydney principally at the moment. And so... Um, at the moment, a lot of planning work. So there's a lot of meetings with stakeholders, a lot of meetings with clients um, and the end asset owners and, uh, and consultants and builders. So there's a lot of that uh, collaboration and engagement. And so there's, that's, that's a big component of it. And then um, the balance of it is, is spent um, with clients um, and, and trying to, to build some pipeline and, uh, and then obviously managing the business itself. So it's busy days but uh, it's very, it's good fun. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an enormous impact all over the world and we find out how it's impacted Paver. We're still stemming ahead really. We've, uh, a couple of our, our major projects, uh, one of our major projects has a lot of overseas uh, stakeholders involved, principally consultant teams, so international design competition, resulted in a lot of, uh, so we've got consultants in uh, Europe, in the US, in Asia and in other parts of Australia. And so we were already operating on on Zoom as a, as a platform uh, for collaboration. And so we were already established for that. I suppose we would have done more in face, uh, you know, face-to-face involvement um, wasn't but we're still steaming it and that's a pre-committed office tower development so in terms of the COVID impact to the uh, market risk uh, that's been uh, minimized for the most part and um, in terms of the resi resi side uh, it's um, mostly mostly okay so there's some planning stuff at the moment um, so it's not particularly particularly impacted but I think the collaboration part and the, I suppose, team building part of it is going to be critical to ramp up again. That's why we're, we're getting everyone you know, back up and running next week. We learn more about his background and the area where he grew up and the school he went to. 
grew up in Sydney, grew up in Epping actually. So, um, and uh, but living in the in the CBD for for a number of years now. Um, in amongst it, went to Kings in uh, North Parramatta, and um, and so I was pretty pretty close by. Yeah. Paver shares with us his journey after finishing school and what he decided to do straight after. I actually took a year off and went over to um, to Europe, and I taught English in Poland for six months. Believe it or not, it was. I didn't. Know, I, had, I had absolutely no money, so I worked a bit in the summer before. Worked in a um, in a pig factory in Liverpool for for a little bit and got some got some cash together and um, and then uh, went over there and and because of that I I um, while other people would go into London or whatever, Poland was a good place where you could be, be somewhere a bit different and um, then go weekends or whatever it is into the rest of. Europe. So that was good. And I traveled around for three months after that. Um, a few, a few adventures, worked on a yacht um, in Croatia on a luxury yacht owned by Greg Posh, uh, who owns Star, Star Trek trucks for a while and, um, and sort of got some money together and then traveled around Italy, Germany, France, uh, and uh, London. So that was good. And then after that, headed to, headed to uni and um, started in property economics. And so um, that was where I suppose the property journey journey started. But, um, but uh, and throughout that time I was uh, working in, uh, I joined the reserves and so doing officer training and uh, throughout, throughout university and a bit after. So um, that was good and, and started working for a, uh, for John Boyd, helping him on on one six one Castle Race Street, which is a, a, a the ANZ Tower now on uh, on Castle Race Street in Sydney. We find out more about John Boyd and his background. He's a, a, a private developer, so he that was, I suppose, where I got my first exposure to commercial development. So that was a it's a, I think a fifty five thousand square meter office tower on. On Castle Ray Street, um, that was um, delivered by Grocon, and uh, and John Boyd had pieced that. Actually, I really liked it. He 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 um, he uh, had some interesting, um, you know, investment models as he was coming up, and he, he he sort of built some wealth and started accumulating these properties in the, in the CBD, and um, and then off the back of that, he put together the the um, a Freehills lease and, a, and an ANZ lease that um, underwrote the development of that project. Now he owns the owns the penthouse up the top of that, which is which is interesting. He went traveling early in his life, and we find out why he chose to go to Poland in particular. To be honest, I don't know. It was it was through this program where they, um, you know, you you go and teach English, and I'm not usually one to just go down the the well trodden you know standard path. I usually do. I mean, different, I suppose. So that was, I suppose, led me to to pick somewhere that was in in um, you know stone's throw from the rest of Europe, but could could be a bit weird, weird and different. After travelling all over Europe, he tells us the reason why he decided to come back to Australia. I was keen to rip in. It was always, I think, it was just go and get a bit more worldly and go out and you know make mistakes and have some fun and and then come back and and start. Um, you know, building a career, so I, I wanted to, to get into that, and so um, that's that's what I did. Um, 
and and I was excited to get into it, yeah. After coming back, he jumped straight into university and we learn about his interesting experience while studying. You do it in, in the holidays during university. I think it's one one weekend a month and uh, and then there's a few different uh, modules that you do but they might be a month long in the summer holidays and the rest of them are two weeks long and you go out and some of them are pretty interesting stories. Like I think on the third module, like in the middle of, you know, throughout uni, you know, in, in holidays, you're meant to go and get a rest, right? But then I went on this one and part of the training was doing these 12-hour missions back to back. So you were, there was eight, eight, eight days worth of this. So you'd average one, an hour sleep a night, some nights no sleep, some an hour or two hours. And um, and so then, you, and so that was interesting. So then you come back to uni and you're pretty, uh, you know, <laughs> exhausted. But it was definitely worth it. Gave me some leadership skills, gave me... Uh, uh, I suppose a um, greater understanding of people and how to work with people and how to work under pressure and high intensity pressure, I suppose. Um, and then I, I worked through that. And um, but eventually, I, I was um, I started working during uni at um, Investec Bank, being that the, the investment bank, um, and and in the property team there, so the structured real estate finance team and. So there was this point in time where I was uh, at university, finally at university, working in Investec Bank in the army still and started becoming a bit overwhelming because I was kind of doing these three, three intense things. And so then um, army was one of the first things to go uh, and um, I, and then uh, the then uni wrapped up and then I was into, into the banking world. Uh, so it was high net worth uh, property development investment banking Many people struggle to find their ideal job straight after university. Paver explains how he was able to get himself into that position in investment banking. At uni, the, I was at UTS and they had a uh, few different scholarships that they um, would run and one of them, Investec Bank, would recruit from um, UTS or well, that team would recruit from UTS um, and they essentially, I think it was something like that, they'll give you... Um, a few grand to do a three months work experience thing, and if you do all right, then they'll you'll carry on. And so um, I did that, and that was in 2000. And, what was that 2010? I think that was. And so it was still pretty rough in the banking sector post GFC. And so um, it was a time where they were going through a bit of a restructure. And so then I, but but during that phase though, it was. Um, there was still, you know, still deals getting done and a book that had to be managed and all of that sort of thing. So that was where, and it's sort of thrown the, in the deep end. You learn, you know, as much in your first week doing that as you do in your degree. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into James Paver's journey and the moment he decided to build his own business. It was around that time where I started forming a view of, well, um, I want to eventually own my own firm. We delve into a massive project that he worked on when he was at Leighton. It's essentially a holy grail of, of de you know, commercial development um, for a developer, I suppose, in the sense that um, it was a pre-lease, pre-sale um, project. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory.
We delve into how he met John Boyd and the job he had where he gained some valuable experience. My um, uncle had introduced me to him and um, had landed me that job um, and then that was just sort of a, you know, a junior assistant DM sort of role learning how offices work and how you know, the world works I suppose and really uh, that, that original one with John Boyd but then after that it was um, at Investec it was as, a, as an associate um, doing uh, property finance analysis and managing um, you know transactions through and managing existing uh, debt books and uh, and um, and mes books and so um, and through that though it was very interesting I, I really valued that time because what it showed me was it gave me excellent exposure to high net worth property developers and investors and across all sectors across um, all geographies in Australia so that I could I um, developed an understanding around how the whole deal works across all the sectors um, and um, exposed me to some really interesting and really I suppose um, successful individuals and let me analyze and look at their business models so that eventually I could start adopting them and applying them like I'm doing now so I mean um, yeah, I can I, I don't maybe I won't need to talk through some of them but some of the some of the smart investment models that they would apply which you know focused around you know minimizing I mean on one end of the scale was minimizing the amount of equity they're using by you know securing you know underperforming assets and you know increasing that performance getting bank debt against it using that um, extra debt to get DAs generating extra value out of the DA going back and getting more debt to generate you know to deliver the project and out of a small seed they've generated this big book of, of value of profit but also the retained asset that they'll maintain so then there were these clients that would have these book of assets so some of them why this one client had left school at 13 years old become a panel beater and then, you know, 17, 18, sold Ford, Fords and Holdens and then he started doing development with his brother and now they've got a, a um, book of over $500 million worth of, of assets. Um, and when I was doing it, it was, about, it was just a bit under that and he was only 40 years old. So you see some of these models and, and some of the rest of them, like... Um, um, some were a bit more cookie cutter, you know, doing subdivisions. Some of them were, um, you know, how to structure joint ventures and how to um, piece it together. And that's, uh, there was a bit of that that I learned, I suppose, through that. It made me think, well, maybe I want to be on the other side of this fence rather than the bank here sitting there and having them brought. Um, and and I, I suppose it was around that time where I started forming a view of, well, um, I want to eventually own my own firm. Um, I don't, and before that, I'd always thought I do want to own my own firm, but I didn't know what field it is. I didn't particularly care, to be honest, of what 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 I would do as long as I sort of yeah, I could start building my, my own you know, uh, future. And then as I made a decision around that time. Um, well, do I, I if I want to do that? Do I want to go the funds management route? And learn that skill set, and then eventually supplement that with someone else's skill set in development, or the other way around. Do I want to learn the on the, on the ground, you know, development skills, and then, um, you know, and then build, 
you know, uh, uh, and then supplement that skill set with with third party capital experience. So I thought, oh well, now I've got some a bit of banking experience. I'll um, go the development route. And so it was it was a while after that that I started working at. Um, I got a job at Leighton. I got uh, you know through the closure of a lot of the banking institutions. I've Investec had a round of redundancy, so I um, snatched that opportunity and, um, and jumped ship over to Leighton Properties. So that's where I started building the the, um, the development skill set, I suppose. Paver talks us through another example of a development that his client has in his development portfolio. That particular one was that particular one was pubs, um, actually. I think it actually it actually started off as. Uh, as a post office was the first deal he did, I think. But then he built a book of, of pubs, and then um, just before the GFC, he had a book of um, you know, thirteen pubs or so. And then just before the um, the new smoking laws, he sold his book of pubs, um, and and then the smoking laws came in, and then you know pub values dropped, and so he sort of cashed out at the top. And that kind of gave him some some cash to start rebuilding his book, <clears throat> um, and then so that that was except then it was pubs with resi attached um, to them as part of the developments. Some people struggle to get a foot into development side of property, but Paver details how it is possible to get into property development. I was always sort of um, trying to think about some. Of, I'll, I'll talk about myself in a, in a while about how we did, but um, for the others, I think. Um, some of it was, a lot of it's through hustling with landowners, I suppose, and so being able to put put the deals together. I'm just thinking of a smart uh, developer out in Perth that was um, putting together, like very very straightforward, but was putting together um, sites that had you know development capacity. It was a matter of um, he would he would um, pre-sell the End product and increase, uh, but use you. It was simple products like five hundred grand for a, an apartment or whatever, and he would pre-sell them with um, and you except say under uh, an option option arrangement and say, oh, if you put in two hundred and fifty grand now, then um, I'll give you a discount on the asset, and then that cash you would use to put into the uh, acquisition of the site and the like. So and then you know through that he would package up, you know the whole. The, the whole development, deliver the development, and and um, and so these mum and dad investors or mum and dad owners would, I suppose, be participating in the development process, and he wouldn't have to use any of his own cash, but he would participate in the profit. So it was, and then he because he had a building book and a sales book um, himself, he would clip the ticket on the, the building margin and the sales, and. Um, and uh, obviously the profit on the film without using any money. So yeah, and that's a pretty standard. I mean, it's not not a standard um, one, but he. I just know that he executed that model really well. For listeners out there who don't know what book means in this term for development, can you sort of just elaborate and explain for them as well too? A book of this a pipeline of very, uh, numerous developments that are being um, you know delivered at any any given time. So usually associated with your you know your balance sheet, how much. Uh, how many projects or assets you have um, on your on your books? 
We discuss his time working at Leighton in the lead up to when he decided he wanted to start his own business. I went across to Leighton for uh, uh, initially principally for a commercial development in North Sydney which was called 177 Pacific Highway which is now the, the Vodafone Tower in, in North Sydney. So it was a 40,000 square metre A-grade office project, five-star Green Star and five-star Neighbours. Um, so it was a... Um, and it was an A-grade um, asset, and so I came into that before commencement in the in the establishment phase, I suppose. And the it was a um, it's essentially holy grail of of you know commercial development um, for a developer, I suppose, in the sense that um, it was a pre-lease, pre-sale um, project. So Leighton, um, we we essentially secured an option over over the existing site and um, and had a 30,000 square meter pre-commitment uh, for the uh, at least pre-commitment and so with that it means that you you uh, essentially can underwrite the development with that fixed cash flow that is going to be available to whoever owns the building and so um, we secured you know the, the building contract with um, CPB and then package that up and then pre-sold that package to a group out of Singapore called Suntech, Suntech REIT. And so, um, and they're, they're a passive fund, they don't take development risk and the deal essentially was that um, they will fund um, our initial um, establishment costs and 100% of the delivery costs, including our profit. And then on completion, they get the keys to an asset that is fully leased. And so, as a developer, we had to take on the development risk, and so we would pass that down to the, the building contractor for the um, for the actual delivery risk. The residual risk for us then was the leasing. We had a thirty thousand square meter pre-commit, so there was ten thousand square meters of vacant space, and then, um, for and then as we were delivering it, um, <laughs> the. It was in 2014, um, so the tenant, the leasing market was weak and incentives were high, and so we had to, um, we had to. So the, the pre-commit, which was late, it was Simic Group. They they contracted their headcount, so they only needed 8,000 square meters now. So it, the the job of now over over the balance of the project, year and a half, I, I had to lease the balance of the 32,000 square metres of vacant space. <laughs> and and if we didn't, and if we didn't, then there would there was a rent guarantee over all of that space, which would amount to you know in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And so, um, and so, the, I embarked on that process, and then progressively leased to Vodafone, Jacobs. Um, CBRE, Cisco, Pepper, and Objective, and NBN, and and then the NBN lease, which was the last one, I cut on the day before practical completion. So it was a, so we got there in the end, and it was and it's a great project. So How long did that process take you to find these tenants? It was a bit of a hunt. So we had we had CBRE on our as our um, leasing agent, but it was. 
Um, so from 2014, we were into the leasing process for the balance of space. And then I think through the course of 2015, I closed the um, most of the deals and then the fit out started happening in 2016. And so throughout, yeah, it was about a year that I did most of those deals. You kind of got to be creative with the what you've got at hand. So because there was pre-agreed structures with the end owner who was receiving the asset, they um, playing tricks with the, the incentives to be able to work out, okay, well, if we generate enough income out of the sign, so we might have allowed a particular amount of money for the Vodafone signage income there, and then we, we do a lease with them for that at a different number or whatever it is, then that money can generate enough revenue out of the end owner to then feed back into the um, the tenant's um, uh, base rent, I suppose. And so um, there was a few things like that going on to try and make, make it stack. But um, I suppose when you're under that pressure, you come up with some uh, you know, creative creative things to, to make it work. We find out how he was able to pick up all of this in such a short span of time. I suppose in the first instance, I had really good people around me. So I think that, so now, so at Avenor, uh, my business partner, Pete Clemisher, he was at the time at Leighton as well, working on the same project. Um, but he had, he left early. He left in 2014 before these were doing. But around the same time, Steve Rayley, who was the national head of leasing at, at Leighton, he was still there. So his role was winding down. But so I suppose in the first instance, I, you know, um, gathered as much, you know, as I could from them um, to help help me on that journey. And then... So that was one part of it, having the right people around. So now Steve works with Avenor as well. Um, so there was that. But then the other one is feel I have a, uh, I'm a very determined person. <laughs> I've got high ambitions and I, I work pretty hard. So I, and I enjoyed it. So I was very excited to be able to um, you know, learn all this stuff with knowing that the end goal was going to be, I'm going to go and do this stuff myself. And so, Models like that where you're putting in a couple of mil and making 60 out of it um, is, is um, and I suppose, enough of a, a carrot to want to learn it pretty quickly. So, inspired by James Paver's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory where we'll discuss his strategy. We don't just go for any deal and um, deal flow, deal volume, I suppose, isn't our strategy. Deal, you know, accuracy is, is more our strategies. What he sees happening to the firm in the future. The next 12 months is going to be quite formative for the firm. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.